Learning the Night Sky, I should say Learning the Christmas Night Sky on episode 284 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody who will be out doing some stargazing this holiday season. So Shane, this is part two of our sort of mini series on Learning the Night Sky where we are introducing listeners to... Um, you know, just sort of the more basics of the night sky for particular times of year. We did one back in November, and this is sort of our, our next step that we're going to release around the winter solstice. Yeah, it's a good time of the year for, for I think, a refresher here. Um, sometimes around the holiday season, people get new gear, new telescopes or first-time telescopes. Uh, so this should help with that. Um, and then the other thing, Chris, is, you know, uh, a number of people have vacation around this time, which mm -hmm. means, you know, for me anyway, I get to stay up all night if I want and do observing. Exactly. So um, it is nice to have a little bit of a, a list ready to roll for the upcoming cold winter nights for us. Excellent. Yeah, well, that sounds uh, sounds good. I know I have a few days off myself and uh, making some plans to to do some astronomy so as it gets dark on these early winter evenings, we still have the autumn stars up. So originally I was going to put the uh, winter hexagon or the winter G or the winter circle or whatever you want to call it in. But, uh, you know, really it's it's still those autumn constellations that are visible just as it gets dark. So I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about those. And then next month, maybe earlier next month, we can do that winter circle. How does that sound? Yeah, sounds good, Chris. So, and we're going to talk to, we have a special guest coming this week, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the fact that we can still see even some summer constellations and autumn constellations and the winter constellations are, are just coming up over the eastern horizon. And uh, when we refer to these, Shane, it's, it's kind of like we think of the sky sort of broken up into these four sections throughout the year, and we sort of label them by the seasons, but they can be a little bit out of phase with the, the actual seasons a little bit, eh? Yeah, it doesn't quite line up perfectly, but it's it's a good guide to um, kind of get you situated for the most part. Yeah. So the first thing I'm going to talk about in, in this uh, episode is the uh, meridian. And so, you know, the meridian chain, it's, it's one of those things that I wish that I had learned um, much sooner in my observing career than, than I did. So uh, I, I put a note there. Do you want to just maybe go over what the uh, what the meridian is there briefly yeah it's a, it's an imaginary line essentially but it it connects both the uh the north uh and south celestial poles and uh really that's it in a nutshell <laughs> yeah it basically yeah. yeah just runs straight down from the north pole right below your horizon to the south pole and it's important um because the the place where the meridian is this line is the the place essentially where anything in the nighttime sky is going to be at its highest point uh, in the nighttime sky on that particular night. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and why that's important sometimes is uh, it, you know, that gets you uh, typically out of the, the bad seeing, so to speak, especially for us Northern observers. Mm -hmm. So it's important because when we want to observe stars, planets, deep sky objects, um, we want to take a look at them when they're as high as possible and as far out of that uh, muck as, as Shane was saying. So so that's the meridian and that's why maybe we would focus on on some of these things than maybe uh, necessarily on some of the uh, traditional uh, winter constellations right off the hop and we'll, we'll do those next month. So. 
maybe we'll talk about the difference between an asterism and a constellation before we jump into some of these items. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you want me to take a run at this? Take a run at it. Okay. So asterisms are not constellations, but they are like patterns of stars, essentially. Um, and sometimes asterisms are part of constellations. And in fact, I think sometimes we know, <laughs> we, we, we are more familiar with the asterism than we are the actual constellation. Exactly. Um, a, a couple that really stand out for me um, in the summertime, it's uh, Sagittarius or the teapot. Mm -hmm. um, I see the teapot quite easily, um, but there's far more to that constellation that you know, you may sometimes forget about. And then uh, maybe more appropriate for this time of the year is uh, Ursa Major uh, is a, a fairly large constellation. Um, in fact, it might be the largest. I can't quite remember. Um, it, it's up there in terms of overall size. Yeah. Uh, but we really kind of know it as the Big Dipper. And that's what a lot of people see is, is those prominent stars in the constellation. Um, so anyway, that's sort of a, a quick breakdown of, uh, of, you know, asterisms versus constellations. Yeah. One of the really big ones that we see is the summer triangle mm -hmm. and that's formed by, uh, Deneb, Altair and Vega. And we still see the summer triangle, um, right now we actually see it sort of getting, getting lower, uh, down, but it's still high, high enough up that, uh, all of those, uh, sort of traditional summer constellations are really into our uh, southwestern sky these evenings, hey? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a little surreal sometimes to to see some of the like kind of autumn stars and and have it you know be winter times. So. <laughs> and the autumn stars they're really just past the meridian at this point. So I was uh, looking at the uh, Great Square of Pegasus, which uh, if you find sort of that north to south point, the point where everything is the highest, it's going to be just barely past. I mean, still very much at the meridian. Um, Cetus is still not quite past the meridian and uh, Pisces and Andromeda and Cassiopeia are right on the meridian. So these, these are all very much autumnal or autumn constellations and, uh, and can make a uh, you know, good place for people to get started at this time of year. So um, we talked about uh, the fact that we group stars, uh, we associate with uh, summer uh, gradually uh, setting right now. And, and what's happened is that essentially when we when we in the northern hemisphere are getting into autumn and, and towards the winter solstice, um, it gets darker and darker every night uh, a little bit earlier. And this happens at almost the same rate that the stars are setting earlier and earlier every night. So once we get into sort of mid-autumn, it's almost like somebody hits the pause button and those same stars and constellations will be visible almost in the exact same spot uh, the next night when it gets dark. Because the next night here anyway, it will be darker about, I think it's like about three minutes earlier. And the stars are setting about three minutes and 50 seconds earlier. So you're only losing less than a minute of sky every night. So you don't really lose them very quickly at all. Once we get past the winter solstice, the reverse takes place. So very suddenly these stars and constellations, the summer triangle is just going to disappear below our horizon here by the time we uh, get too far into January. Yeah. Yeah. No, good, good, uh, good points to remember. Yeah. And that's one of the things that you can actually observe 
around the winter solstice. So you're going to get this um, maybe a day or so below the winter solstice. But uh, uh, once this drops, you're going to be able to witness those constellations getting lower and lower very quickly in the nighttime sky. And then when we do our next episode like this, uh, the winter constellations will be nice and high for us. Yeah, yeah, that'll be awesome. So right now, Saturn is... uh, is setting just as it gets dark. Jupiter is just past the meridian, so it's still really a good time to take a look at Jupiter. In fact, had it not been so cold the other night, I would have been like, I'll just take some views of Jupiter. And some people might have been asking, why didn't Chris take a look at Jupiter when he was out? Well, it was so darn cold that I wasn't going to go do some casual observing. We looked at Orion very briefly just with our eyes, but uh, there was just no way in heck I was going to start tooling around the sky at uh, at minus 27 degrees. So and that wasn't happening. So Mars is still a majestic target um, when this uh, this podcast is being heard because uh, it's sitting nice up high in Taurus and uh, right around the holidays, if somebody gets a telescope, um, figure out where Taurus is in the nighttime sky and uh, maybe go take a look at it. And what would be a good book, Shane, for somebody to get if they were, maybe they received a telescope for Christmas and they're wondering, how the heck do I get started? What would be a good book for them to start with? Well, we typically recommend uh, Night Watch by uh, Terrence Dickinson. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a great starter book. You know, it it I, it helps you identify all of the constellations as well as prominent objects to observe within those constellations. And uh, in my opinion, and I think yours too, it's probably the best uh, beginner so. guide, and and really it can serve you for quite a long time. Um, and maybe if you wanted to pair up something with a little more detail, uh, the Sky and Telescope Pocket Atlas is wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, that that provides a lifetime of objects to observe. Yeah. And if somebody is just getting going, they, they can make up a little red flashlight um, because we want to preserve our our night vision when we're doing astronomy. So if you take like a white light in particular, the worst light you could use is like a cell phone light because those things are so bright. And if you shine that on a white page of a star chart, um, then it's going to sort of cause your pupil to constrict and it's not going to let in all those faint photons. So it's going to be very difficult when you go from the star chart back to the nighttime sky. Also, the same thing can kind of happen if you download a uh, an application for viewing the stars, like a planetarium software. Um, those can be good, but if you don't use like your dimmest setting on the phone and the red filtration on the phone as well, then again, you're going to have the same problem going from the phone screen to the nighttime sky. So we just really recommend doing something very basic here because the phone can just complicate things. Just put the phone away for a couple hours, people, and just take Terrence Dickinson's book out with you. Make a little red flashlight. Just take one of those cheap little cylindrical flashlights and paint the lens red or put some red tape over it or put a red piece of plastic over it. That's going to be good enough. And then uh, and then go out with that and go out with your new telescope or binoculars or whatever you got. That's going to make for a great evening. Just, uh, just ignore your cell phone for a few hours over the holidays. I think that's generally yeah. good advice. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And and maybe one thing to add about the red flashlight is um, try to take down the brightness of that light to just what you need to be able mm-hmm. to read a star chart. Because even a red flashlight, if it's too bright, will yep. uh, ruin your dark adaptation. So um, the, the thing too that maybe is is hard to realize until you get under a dark sky is just how bright any light is and how little light you actually need to read mm-hmm. a star chart um you know i i struggle with this quite a bit when i look for astronomy flashlights because 
even like, you know, lights that advertise like five lumens or one lumen, I find them too bright, usually under a dark sky. Like you really, really need to tone down the brightness um, to, to help preserve that dark, uh, dark seeing. Excellent. So once you find uh, Taurus in your star chart, whatever you're using, game we recommend Nightwatch by Terrence Dickinson. It's got all kinds of charts and other information in there. Um, you'll notice that there's going to be two sort of orangish stars there. So one is Aldebaran, which is in a big open cluster called the Hyades. And you can see that even with your unaided eye from a dark site. And the other thing, uh, which is going to be sort of to the left or a little bit over towards the east, is going to be bright Mars. And if you take your new little telescope and you point it at Mars, you might be able to see some of the desert landscapes, maybe some of the bright polar regions, maybe even a polar cap, and maybe some of the dark features like the Sirtis Major. Right overhead, this is pretty cool, Shane. If you go out, if you go out on Christmas and you look straight up overhead or any of the days around Christmas or over the Christmas break, you're going to see the giant W of Cassiopeia almost straight up overhead for us. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you were like in Saskatoon, I think it pretty much is straight up overhead in Saskatoon or Edmonton. But uh, for other folks, it's going to be just very, very high in the north. But for, for lack of a better word, it's pretty much going to be just past overhead for us looking up from the south. And this is a huge W pattern. It's one of the easiest constellations to see. And then, like I said, Jupiter is going to be at the meridian sort of down uh, to the south. And if you look halfway between Cassiopeia and Jupiter, you're going to find the giant square of Pegasus. And man, Pegasus is such a huge square. Sometimes it's difficult for people to sort of draw that square out. Yeah, it's massive. Um, This is one of the things too that, you know, sometimes I struggle with the, like the scale of constellations compared to what I'm seeing on a star chart. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's something I often forget is just how large the square Pegasus really is. It's enormous. The square of Pegasus is one of the um, great patterns to learn. I think of it as like the sort of like the key pattern to learn in the late autumn sky because it's this giant square so it's a pattern that's very easy for most people to see and once you see it once you can like always see it the other thing is is that it's nice and high right now it's right at the meridian it's going to be very high up making it easier to detect because you're not going to be dealing with as many clouds and not any kind of light should be in the way so that's also easy and then just off to the left of the top sort of the top left star, which is called Alpharetz. But anyway, the top left star is actually part of the constellation of Andromeda. And if you have a pair of binoculars and you kind of just sort of sweep up and to the left a little bit, you can find the Andromeda galaxy. And the Andromeda galaxy is a whole galaxy. It's like our Milky Way. It's a little bit bigger than our Milky Way, but it's almost two and a half million light years away. And you can find this just by simply going across with your binoculars a little bit off that great square of Pegasus. And if you have a telescope and you're at a reasonably dark site and Andromeda is very, very close to the zenith on these nights, you're really going to stand a good chance of seeing maybe some of the dark lanes or spiral structure that's there, even in a very small little telescope like my 60 millimeter. Yeah, yeah. And again, if it's if it's a, a good sky and it's quite dark, you might see a couple other galaxies. M31 and uh, M110 are all in that general field. Um, and if you're looking for a challenge and you have some aperture, um, you can observe some star clusters within the Andromeda galaxy, which is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But you definitely need some detailed charts for that. And I don't know what aperture is the minimum. I don't know. You know I'm going to say of, six inches is where I start to find it to be easy to see. Eight inch reflector is 
uh, it's pretty easy to see. I think it's NGC 206 is the bright star cloud that you can see in Andromeda. Yeah, yeah. So um, again, if you're if you're looking for sort of a unique observation and somewhat of a challenge, that that's something to add to your list. So for those uh, with new telescopes at Christmas or just some time over the holidays, we hope you have a great holiday season and happy stargazing. Do you have anything to uh, to add to this, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. All right, I'm just going to read another plug here for uh, for our friend uh, Dave, uh, who's got a who's got a book out, and we talked a little bit, a little bit in the last episode. the uh, The book is called The Mi'kmaq Moons. It's spelled M I apostrophe K M A W, and then Moons. And uh, one thing that in uh, Shane and I both have copies of this book. We paid for our copies, but. Um, Format Publishing has given us a copy to give away in the new year. And one thing they just asked is, hey, just uh, do a couple shout outs for the book and we're happy to do it because we both read the book and it is awesome. And one thing that we've talked about is that we both enjoy learning about other cultural views of the night sky. So this book on the names and cultural significance of uh, each of the full moons in the Mi'kmaq culture is uh, is really neat. And sort of from the press release, it says, uh, for the past decade, Mi'kmaq elders and knowledge keepers have shared stories of the traditional night sky calendar with authors Kathy LeBlanc and Dave Chapman. And in this book, Kathy relays this knowledge in stories told to her young relation, Holly. Each moon's story is richly illustrated with evocative color paintings created for this book uh, by the noted Mi'kmaq artist Loretta Gould. And uh, we'll give out a copy in the new year, but if you just want to go buy one like we did, um, you can go to Amazon.com and just uh, Mi'kmaq Moons, which is M-I-K-M-A-W, and then just Moons. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.